So we've been sitting and walking and standing and being here together now for two days. And it's just about long enough really to, or perhaps a little bit more than long enough, to start to get the sense of what's happening, what's going on here. It's interesting, I think, that when we arrive, often the sense is we've come here to learn meditation or to develop our meditation. Or we, we have that sort of sense or idea, and it's uh, not inappropriate. It's true in a certain way. And yet, what's more fundamentally happening, perhaps, or what we're really more fundamentally concerned with is what it means for us to encounter and to see the truth of our life to see the truth of what's going on in our heart and our mind. And I remember very well when I was traveling in Asia many years ago now and first encountered Dharma teachings, these practices, and very interested to learn more, scouring a bookshop in Delhi for anything to do with Meditation, I came across this book entitled The Heart of Buddhist Meditation by a German scholar monk who was ordained in Sri Lanka, Nyanaponika Thera. Thera means elder. It's actually interesting. It was classified as if that was his surname, but uh, I obviously didn't understand that. But uh, there was a, a phrase that he used quite early in the book, and it might have even been his introduction, that struck me, and I... I'm struck by it whenever I turn back to it. He said, this mind, and I'm going to just, when I use that word mind, I'm going to retranslate that slightly to heart mind because what I think we understand by what he was talking about, to my sense, is more fully or adequately expressed in terms of the heart and mind, as we've talked about. And... uh, the heart mind. So this heart mind is bound all over and yet can know freedom here and now. For me it was a very powerful statement. And for us here I think it's not unusual to have perhaps more of a sense of immediate resonance with the first part of that statement when we hear the words this heart mind is bound all over when we see the different forces and patterns and habits of conditioning that we encounter in our heart and mind and of course therefore in our lives there can easily be a sense of being bound of being constrained, of being limited, of being entangled. And it's painful and difficult and frustrating. And so to, in the same sentence, equally hear of the possibility of freedom. This heart-mind can know freedom here and now, in this moment. This is a, a statement of, for me, some still considerable power. And I remember when I was talking with one of my early teachers in India, Ajahn Manindra, sorry, Anagarika Manindra. Anagarika means teacher in uh, 
In Sanskrit, uh, Ajahn means teacher and Thai, so sometimes I swap them in my head. Anagarika Manindra. In fact, I must be jet-lagged. Anagarika <laughs> doesn't mean teacher at all, as some of you know. Acharya Anagarika Manindra was, in fact, his title, and uh, Acharya means teacher. Anagarika is his um, ordination as a, as a, a samanera, a wandering practitioner of the teachings. And so uh, I didn't mean to confuse you and probably have already, but uh, it's really not to do with his title. Manindra, when I was speaking with him about something that I was struggling with where I was quite upset and angry, and I actually can't remember now, all these years later, what that was. But he looked at me and he said, you know, anger comes from outside the mind. And I thought, huh? What's he saying? What does that mean? I'd like to speak this evening about the forces of reactivity that we encounter in our hearts and minds that are sometimes called the hindrances, and that's how they were first translated. I find it more useful to describe them as the challenges that we encounter in practice. Those things that we are primarily challenged by in our meditative journey. And understanding them as challenges, I think, changes perhaps the way we relate to them. And so, having had this uh, teaching and instruction from Manindra, anger comes from outside the mind, I was again touched and moved to read in one of the discourses of the Buddha where he speaks in a similar way. This was some years later. When he, and he said this, again, I'm going to use the word heart-mind. Chitta is the word from the Pali language that refers to the, the kind of sensitivity and reso- responsive, responsive capacity that we experience that is uh, commonly translated as mind, that way in which we are affected and respond. And uh, I find heart-mind more meaningful. So the Buddha, he said, this heart-mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is clouded by afflictions which come from outside the mind. Come from outside. The ordinary unlearned or those who have not studied the Dharma do not understand this. And for them, there is no development of this heart-mind. And he went on to say, and this is a slightly free translation. There's actually just a few more words to give some variation on the translation. Um, This heart-mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is free from the afflictions which visit it. This the wise and learned student or practitioner of the Dharma understands. And for them there is the development of the heart-mind. So something really important here in understanding that what we are encountering is something that visits but does not define the nature of this heart and mind. That it is ultimately free from these things, while 
at the same time subjects to visits from them. And so it's necessary for us to see clearly these visitors, these challenges. And we've mentioned them already. In fact, I think Christina may have named them and possibly Gina also. I can't remember now. Uh, It's interesting when the mind... We sometimes think letting go is a really useful thing, and in many cases it is. I'll go on to express and enthuse about it at times, I'm sure. But the mind that just lets go of really useful pieces of information, like who said what, or the actual proper name of my beloved teacher, it's not quite so useful, it seems. Uh, It's a different kind of letting go. Um, But that's just how it is sometimes. Anyway, someone mentioned here, I think, uh, the hindrances, craving... In forms of desire and grasping, aversion, its expressions in fear and anger and hatred, restlessness and agitation, sloth, as it's sometimes described, or heaviness, dullness, drowsiness, torpor, the other words sometimes used, the fourth, and doubt or skeptical uncertainty and skeptical undermining. These are the five challenges that we face in meditation that probably we've all encountered in different ways different forms already. And sometimes, of course, not just at one, one at a time when it sort of feels like that might be a fair sort of battle to take on. I can deal with one of these things, yeah. I can take on you know, some restlessness or some aversion or maybe I can deal with some craving. But no, actually often they come you know, several at a time, attacking in teams. And you know, we've even, someone came up with a term some years ago about a multiple hindrance attack. You know, and it's kind of like, you kind of get the sense of being really quite afflicted by all this. And and sometimes, again, I think we can really relate to that. And they're powerful forces. It's important that we respect that there's power in these patternings and conditionings. But they are also visitors. And yet, we don't, if we don't see that, we get pulled off the track of our meditative trajectory, our, our journey of exploration and discovery. And it's a little bit like, you know, if we don't quite know clearly what the path is and what it looks like, it's really easy to be drawn to one side, to go and sort of pulled off the direction. Or if you're traveling somewhere unfamiliar and you really don't know, should I go left, should I go right? It's quite confusing. It's quite difficult to find your way. And so it's important to be really clear about these experiences, to be able to recognize them and name them. And I'd just like to speak about both the attitude we can bring and the skillful relationship we can bring and also some of the specifics with regard to them. If we see the forces that we encounter in this way as visitors, then it gives us some sense of how to respond to them. It's like this is a visitor. Okay, a guest at our door. What's appropriate when a guest comes to knock at your door? Now, sometimes, of course, we try and, you know, keep the door shut, keep them out. I don't want this experience. This is getting in the way of my meditation. Now, the number of times I've had myself or heard another person express that view, that thought, something is in the way of my meditation. No, 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 this is your meditation. (laughs) Whatever it is, this is your meditation. And again, when we shift from seeing it as a hindrance, it's in the way, to a challenge. Okay, this is my meditation, but it isn't easy. Maybe I'm still learning how to handle it. 
But this is where we are. So something comes. Now, if a guest comes to our door, we might say, hello, ho, what's your name? Maybe we recognize them. We've seen them before. Oh, yeah, didn't you come trying to, you know, do you have those guys and women and men who knock on the door and try to sell you something? And it's like, there's a certain form of politeness that's required there where you say, actually, hello, and actually, no, I don't want to buy that. You'd have more luck next door or somewhere else, maybe. Something about that. And yet, it's really easy if we're not clear, someone knocks on the door, they're nice, they're polite, they're well-spoken, we're friendly, we're, we're nice, we like to try and be friendly ourselves, so you know, they like to come in and talk to us. So we end up, if we let them in, they start talking to us, it's like half the day goes by. They've got an agenda that's not ours. And this whole, you know, it seems fleets of people out there walking around houses doing that. I don't know if they do that so much here, but certainly in, a, in, in England where I live, that still happens. And if in this internal experience, when when these different forces come, it's like we almost invite them into our house and then we forget who really lives here. We think it's these things that own the house. It's like this is what's going on. So if we kind of surrender to that, we get taken over by them. And yet if we fight with them, if we contend with them, you know, have you ever tried to ignore one of those guys knocking on your door? They're trained. They just keep knocking. They've seen the car or seen your light at the window or noticed you somewhere. They know you're in there. And <laughs> dong, dong, dong. They don't go away. And there's a, we've, we've got to actually engage with it, to fight with it, to resist it, to, to try and push the experience away. It actually becomes painful. And curiously, when I was reflecting on this theme um, some time ago, one of my cats uh, started scratching at the door, and this, this particular cat, who's sadly no longer alive, but at the time very alive, scratching on the door, wanting to get in. And I know what he wants to do. He wants to come and sit on my lap or sit on my desk and sort of engage with me. He was sort of always enjoyed attention. And I'm thinking, I need to concentrate. I'm going to be speaking in half an hour. I can't let this... Of course, I can't concentrate because on my door. Yeah? And it's like, should I pick him up? Should I throw him out? You know, <laughs> what am I going to do here? <laughs> what we need to do is recognize. Okay, this is the nature of that particular being. This is how it plays out. And make space for, without making it into an obstacle. And I'll say more about how that looks with very specific, some specific examples around the particular hindrances or challenges we face. But again, in terms of this attitudinal sort of orientation, understanding that the hindrances have their power, these forces of greed, of hatred, of restlessness, of dullness, or of skeptical doubt, they have their power by the way in which we don't see them clearly and are not seeing them clearly we either feed into them or react against them in such a way as to become entangled with them. And together with that, when we don't see them clearly, we take them to be who we are. We identify with them. And in identifying with them, the power they have to distort our experience and our capacity to engage skillfully with it becomes it seems unstoppable. When we 
when we have the sense or belief that I am this, rather than I am experiencing this, or this is something arising here and now, this fear, or this restlessness, or this drowsiness, as a number of you have spoken about. You know, it's like, okay, this is something arising. This is an experience that's happening. This can be met. No experience is outside our meditation. We've, we've, we've expressed this. And it is hard to get that, isn't it? It's like, this feels like it's outside my meditation because my idea of my meditation is this calm, empty, pleasurable, relaxed, peaceful space. And yet, that space is not defined by what's going on inside it. So long as it is for us, we're not going to find it. So long as our experiences define, or defining the sense of qualitative space, we're not going to find it in the experience. But we need to understand the experiences nonetheless. So if we attend to these experiences, what happens? And again, I imagine you've all had some opportunity to do so over these two days. What happens if we just say, okay, here you are. Now, it's really interesting what happened when I said that to the cat that was trying to get into the room at the time. I said, okay, just, you know, it's actually quite a nice door. I don't want him to destroy it. He might, you know, claw his way through it by the time I, if I leave him out there too long. And what was really interesting, he came in, he jumped on my notes, started sort of playing with them. So it was like, I can't do any work now, can I? But I just sat there and thought, okay, this is what, this is desire. This, he, he wants to be with me. This is wanting and he, he's not going to be told no. But I just left for a few moments and what was really interesting, he did that kind of annoying getting in my way thing and then he climbed onto my lap, curled up and went to sleep. And I just got on with working on the talk. And there's something about that for this, the sense of when we open to the fact that, oh, this is here. Okay, this has to be my practice right now. My practice isn't what's going to happen when this is gone. This is my practice right now. We can't postpone it till afterwards because there isn't any meaningful afterwards here in those terms. This is it. And so if we can see it without having to judge ourself or the experience, and this is key, the tendency we have to judge the fact that it's going on, that this shouldn't be going on, when in fact, if it is, it is. And more importantly, that we then tend to form conclusions about ourselves. Oh, this means something about me. This means that I'm doing it wrong. Or this means that I'm no good at it. Or this means that I'm obviously a hopeless failure and this is just another one of my you know, tragic examples of that fundamental reality of life. It's so easy to lose heart in the face of these challenges. And yet, what I often find interesting and important to reflect on is that the Buddha himself, on the night of his awakening, encountered them. And again, I think, and I don't know if Christina mentioned that last night or if that was the last time I heard her give a Dharma talk, but anyways, it's been said before, so maybe I'm saying it again or maybe not. Um, but it's striking, isn't it? That actually, here's this remarkably um, 
committed practitioner encountering these forces of greed, of hatred, of restlessness, agitation, drowsiness and doubt on the night in which his awakening dawned and flowered in his heart and mind. Does that mean we could genuinely conclude that because we're experiencing them somehow this means everything's gone horribly wrong? Actually, no, it might be, in fact, a sign of something really important happening. Part of what's going on here is that we are challenging a lot of our patterns of conditioning. We're sitting and walking and being here in a way that by its very nature and not accidentally, in fact, starts to flush these tendencies out of our system or out of our, 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 our consciousness into, into the clear light of day because we need to see them, we need to meet them. And much of our life, when we don't really take care with how we live, we don't really pay attention to how we live, we have so many ways of avoiding ever having to encounter these places. And part of what's here in the form of a retreat is that we close off or we take away or we let go of a large number of our normal escape routes or ways of accommodating and making sure things are okay. And there's still a few left, which that's always going to be the case. And unfortunately, the longer one practices, the more one discovers them. Um, so there's a certain blessing in being new because you don't yet know. And um, interestingly, although that's challenging, it's also very fruitful. And for those who've been practicing over some years, there's... Another challenge, which is actually to learn to not follow all the ways we've learned to get comfortable and actually be willing to sit a little bit on the edge of things. But for those who are more in the, the realm of newer or relatively new, there, there's enough. You don't, you don't need to work on anything extra. There's enough going already, I imagine. So that we challenge or that we're challenging our habitual way of being is what throws up or flushes out a lot of these patterns of reactivity. That we're making choices and commitments about, okay, I will sit and I'll stay here. Okay, maybe I need to change my posture. Okay, maybe, you know, something else happens sometimes. But the basic commitment to be here runs counter to the way in which a lot of these patterns are pulling us into an unconsciousness in life, in which we become submerged in or beneath these, what we call hindrances or challenges, where we're living simply playing out in the world. And it's so painful for ourselves and so destructive in this world when these forces are not attended to, when they're not taken care of, when we don't take responsibility for them. Because they are visitors, for sure. And yet, at the same time, so it's, it's not like somehow it's my fault that this arises. But having arisen, we have a responsibility to handle it skillfully. And a responsibility to ourselves, equally as to this world. We can see, perhaps, the tragic effects of, of greed and of hatred in so many ways playing out in our communities, in our countries, in this planet. And the, the uh, in a way, falling asleep to what's going on that seems so prevalent. 
Part of why that happens is that it's uncomfortable to face the forces that we see outside. It's easy to rail about greed and hatred when we see it in the world. But that we too have these seeds within us, these tendencies within us, and that we need to take responsibility for them. And so the first of the hindrances, the challenges that we face, craving. We don't necessarily face it first, but traditionally it's spoken of first. Craving, wanting, grasping, desire. There's this sense of, I want or need something to get, to keep, to hold on to. And with it, the key thing that underlies it is the sense and the belief that if I can get or keep or maintain this thing, whatever it might be, this will provide satisfaction. This will provide happiness. This will somehow offer me fulfillment and completion. And that subtext is often not so conscious. There's just the sense of, I want, I need, I must have, that we experience this. And it's interesting how that plays out. You know, we might be sitting here, we've been practicing, and it feels like, oh, I've been working hard. I mean, does anyone feel like they've been working hard? It's hard work, yeah. And then sometime, almost it seems in spite of everything else going on, there's a moment of calm and there's a, oh, a breathing out and just a sense of we land, we connect, we touch a sense of stillness or just an openness or ease. And a moment later, there's a sense of, got it, I'm here, made it, Whew. now how do I keep it? And that, that, that movement of taking hold of our experience, grasping at it, so quickly and easily just crushes the very space and peace and ease that we were experiencing a moment ago. And it's like, I've got to the place which will make me happy, and now I've got to stay here. But it doesn't work, <coughs> excuse me, it doesn't work like that. With so many things that are lovely and beautiful, which we can be deeply touched by, it's hard to let ourselves enjoy them because we want to prolong them. We want to keep them. We imagine that they will only really satisfy us if they can be forever. It's really interesting with photography. I don't know if any of you have you know, done a bit of photography. I remember when I first traveled, I, I took a camera for the first time. And I found very soon I'd be frustrated at the fact that I couldn't get a good picture of a beautiful scene. And it's like back in those days, you didn't know what picture you had on your camera. You couldn't check it and make sure it was okay. But I, I remember thinking, this is really sad. Here am I, it's really beautiful, and I'm distressed at the fact that I can't get a good picture of it. It's like that attempt to try and take something home or to keep it. And I arrived a day or two before the retreat and was walking around the loop, as I'm sure many of you have. And uh, as I was walking past the, um, the dam at Gaston Pond, which is the, the pond over there, if you haven't been there, sort of over there, yeah. Um, I saw the beaver, and it was really close, and it was like, wow, the beaver, and you know, it was, and there was this, there was this, I, the beaver, wow, I get to see, it was three, four yards away, and coming closer with some debris in its mouth to put on the dam to try and block it up, which it's not supposed to do, because it's got to, but there was this thing, I was looking at the beaver, and my hand was trying to get my phone out of my pocket, and I was like, stop that, but I couldn't, you know, and in the end, there am I getting my phone out trying to get a picture of this. It's tragic. <laughs> when it was the closest, when I was within almost touching distance of this little creature, not that little, this creature. And the tragedy that actually I didn't just sit there. I couldn't just go, oh, amazing. I couldn't do it. It was like I wanted to get a picture of it so strongly. 
And we see that in our lives. And it's so painful, so tragic. In the context of the practice, when we see something like that arising, and it's not always around something pleasurable, though it might be, but noticing that sense of the way we kind of tighten, we grip, it's like, I want to, I need, I must have. And questioning or being able to consider that, that idea that lies behind it, that if I get this, then things will be great. If you know, we get the meditative experience we were hoping for, then it's all just going to be you know, wonderful from there on in. Um, you know, wonderful if there's lovely meditation experience, but it's not going to be here forever. Nothing is. And so when we see that urge, the response that's called for is to let go. I said I was going to come back to letting go and that it's actually a good thing. Um, to let go, to notice the sense of, oh, this is going to do it for me. That doesn't mean we're not going to still have the attraction. doesn't mean we're not going to still maybe want. But that sense of, okay, I don't need to fulfill that desperate pull to keep hold of. I don't need to do that. And to notice what happens. And I mean, we touched on this in the questions, that sense of what happens when the desire itself dissolves. There's relief. There's release. There's a, ha. Ah, and we actually find that we're here again. And that whole process is part of the practice of seeing the grasping, feeling the contraction in the body and the way the mind tightens and that sense of desperate hope. It's, I mean, it's, there's, there's a kind of a way one could have a lot of compassion for the mind <coughs> caught with craving and desire. Because it's actually painful, and we know that. And yet somehow we so easily are seduced by it. And in the context of the meditation, you know, thinking, oh, you know, so many times we're thinking, you know, if it was different than this, then maybe it would all work for me. But it's always going to be the way it is. And so, as we start to understand that there isn't something, there isn't a situation, there isn't a condition that's somehow going to complete or fulfill or bring to a conclusion this urge, this movement of craving, of grasping, then something else becomes possible. Then we start to perhaps be able to explore what's already here, to see more deeply and fully what's already here. So the second challenge or hindrance is aversion, which we experience as resistance, as fear, as irritation, anger, judgment. And we can notice it as a sense of pulling away, of withdrawing. And uh, again, there's a contraction in it. There's a tightening in it. We can notice physically. Just again, when we're in contact with our bodies, we notice the tightening in the body. And we can notice the way also the mind contracts, the pattern of thinking becomes smaller and tighter when there's something I don't like. And uh, either there's a pulling away, or when we can't pull away from, we push. We try and push whatever that experience might be away from us. And there's the basic flight-fight responses that are you know, quite well documented and studied as a sort of very primary instinctive patterns. 
And so what we notice, if we feel that contraction, we see, oh, again, there's an underlying sense with aversion. When something arises that's difficult for us, there's an underlying sense that this experience, if I don't get rid of it, then this will prevent me from being happy, peaceful, satisfied, fulfilled. It's the, in a way, the reverse of the, the craving. It's got that un, often unspoken but implicit sense of, if this is here, I cannot be at ease, I cannot be happy, I cannot have joy or well-being or peace. And... Um, and so, of course, then the, the pressure to somehow to fix, to change, to remove, to get rid of is born out of that. And yet, if we look, if we see that tendency, no matter what we get rid of, there's always something else. Have you noticed that? There's always something else. You know, if this is uncomfortable and we sort it out, then that becomes uncomfortable. You know, if... Uh, if all that noise that's going on in the building finally stops, and eventually it does, it's like, ha, ah, then maybe we hear our neighbors breathing, and it's like, mm. you know? <laughs> I haven't heard anyone's breathing, don't worry. <laughs> but, you know, something else comes along. So long as the, 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 um, the latent tendency to aversion is there, getting rid of or avoiding the things that we find frustrating or irritating doesn't help us. Again, I think a day or two before you all arrived, um, but I was here. They served this wonderful salad, and it was uh, with corn. I don't know if you know, but I really like it. It's this sort of uh, micro-protein-based uh, sort of thing, and, and uh, I like it. Um, <laughs> but they served it with celery, and I hate celery. I absolutely put celery in the meal, and it's like it tastes bad. And it was like, what am I going to do? This is yummy, but it tastes bad. And it was really interesting to see my mind go, they've spoiled it completely. Oh, no. I'm going to have a miserable lunch. Maybe I won't even have any. I'll just go and have a piece of bread. And that was my first response. And it's like, okay, that's aversion, yeah? And I know it. I'm pretty familiar with my relationship to salary. Um, <laughs> other people seem to like My wife loves it. I don't know how that happens, but it seems to be so. Um, I mean, she's kind and doesn't put it in the salad, but um, here am I. And it's sort of like, okay, can I just eat this? And notice, okay, there's this really yummy bit, and there's this bit that sort of tastes just, I don't know why, but it tastes bad. And just relax with that and say, okay, that's how it is. And it was interesting because actually on this occasion, and this is rare, I think I actually enjoyed it. Now, I didn't enjoy the celery, but the whole experience... And that, I regard that as a major development in my practice. This is, you know, <laughs> students in places in other countries will tell you I've talked about this for years. Um, me and celery, it's just such a strong thing. And, you know, food has such a visceral effect on us. You know, we, we like what we like, and we don't like what we don't like. And we're used to, in most situations, being able to control it, to get what we want and avoid what we don't. And we are in a fortunate minority in the world to have that opportunity, but most of us do. And so part of being on retreat is that actually we put that down. And, you know, I'm really aware that today, you know, supper was pretty simple for yourselves. And probably you, you know that the, um, the staff have a lot of meetings on a Monday. And so on a Monday evening, the cooks haven't had much time to do cooking. And so they just offer a simple meal. And that's actually the meal that used to be served here every evening. 
um, with occasional exceptions. So it's a kind of interesting, and and yet that sense of but this isn't what I wanted might arise. This isn't what we had last night. That lovely peanut soup, you know. <laughs> And so again, we can see how these things play out. It's useful also to understand in relationship to the pattern of aversion some of the features of it, particularly around fear. That when we, when we anticipate, when we're not actually encountering something that's, that's difficult or painful, but we're more imagining that we might or contemplating that we might, this is what we call fear. When we're, we're not actually encountering it. It's like if I was thinking, what are they going to do for dinner tonight? Maybe it's going to be celery salad. You know, that would evoke fear um, <laughs> in this case. Um, but what we notice in our experience, if we watch that the fear tends to take us away from where we are. It's a form of aversion, of resistance, of pushing away, that takes us away from where we are, that pulls us into the future. And when you notice fear arising, and it may be fear around some, you know, maybe there's something painful or uncomfortable happening in the body. And we need to give some attention to it and see, you know, what's going on? Is this actually harmful? And it's important we do that. We ask that. We might notice some fear, and, you know, it's how amazing how quickly the, the, the mind can go from the, the twinge in the knee to the, the sort of the image of the ambulance pulling up at IMS <laughs> and taking us away, you know, and, 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 you know, the, the, the life in a wheelchair thereafter. You know, the mind moves really quickly like that. And you see, oh, it's, it's into the future. If we can come back into the present and know with fear, it's always happening in the present. It can be met in the present. And if there's actually some danger in the present, which is different than fear, if there's danger, we can meet that. We may need to do something. We maybe do need to change our posture. Or if we're standing on the road and we hear the sound of a vehicle, maybe we do need to get off the road. That's intelligence. That's not fear. That's not aversion. It's not aversion to say, hmm, I don't think I'd like it if that truck ran over my body. I don't think that's aversion. That's intelligence. So it's really important that we distinguish these things. And we're clear about that. And with aversion, when we encounter, when there's that sense of, I don't want this, maybe it's some feeling arising in my heart of grief or irritation or, or, or confusion or something, and we don't want that feeling. Or maybe just the mind going, as it does. You know, and I don't want it to do that. I want it to be calm. It's like, can we just let it be? With craving and grasping, that sense of taking hold of, it's let go. It's like, see if we can relax the urge to try and keep hold of the experience or pursue it. With aversion, it's much more useful to think in terms of letting be. Let it be. Let it be. If we think of letting go, it tends to have the subtle sense that if I let it go, it'll go away. And that's not how it works. It's just another form of trying to get rid of. So let it be. Let And see, can I be in the presence of this? Can I see how the mind contracts? How the body contracts? And with both of these, really useful to just bring a sense of awareness and tend and sort of a kind attention to the contraction in the body and just seeing, okay, can I let it soften? Can I let it widen? Can I let it open? Because the effect of these, these patterns and forces in the mind is again is to limit and to bind the sense of space and of possibility that isn't dependent upon their presence or absence but upon whether we understand, whether we see them clearly and understand them for what they are, which is 
forces arising out of conditions and to the extent that you know much of our lives for much of us before we encountered practice and probably <laughs> plenty of our lives after we encountered dharma practice you know we've just allowed these forces to play out we've followed them we've allowed them to drive the show a lot of the time and so of course it takes some real time to learn to handle them and for their power to begin to loosen but to see nonetheless for no matter how insistent they are, they are not who we are they arise in the space of heart and mind and can be seen. And anything we can see ultimately does not define who we are. Anything that arises also passes. And so those movements of craving or aversion, if we can actually sit with them and let them come, notice them, not act them out, not do, try and do something to follow them or to get rid of them, but just let them be we'll see that they're a wave that comes and goes, as all things. And in that, there's a freedom in their very midst of not being defined by them. And ultimately realizing that we don't have to make our choices based on either following them or resisting them. But seeing what's true, what's useful in the moment here. So the third challenge or hindrance is restlessness. The experience we can sometimes find when it sort of feels like the body's all sort of itchy or antsy or ants in the pants. You have that expression? If you don't, you know, I'm not sure if one would want to imagine it, but it's sort of kind of like it's really hard to sit still and no matter where we go, it's like essentially it's an excess of energy and the mind can be jumping from this to that, from one thing we want to another thing we don't like to what's happening tomorrow to what I did yesterday. And it's kind of like the, the overall sense of it is there's an agitation, there's an unease. And it's really hard to be still. The urge is to do something. The, the pressure that comes with restlessness is I've got to do something, I've got to move, I've got to get that thing, I've got to sort that out. And, you know, a lot of our lives we can be driven in that way. So coming to sit still is really challenging. We, we're confronting this urge to keep moving, to keep doing, to always be fixing and changing and that. And, um, you know, interestingly, the Buddha once said that the, the pain of the body is disguised by the postures. It's kind of a slightly cryptic statement. And what he meant, or what I understand he meant by that, was that the discomfort of the body and actually not just the body, but in this case the discomfort of the body is kind of disguised by the fact that we keep moving it. We keep doing something to adjust. You know, even if you sit in a really comfortable chair and don't move, it gets uncomfortable quite quickly. Even if you lie on the most expensive mattress and really don't move, it becomes uncomfortable quite quickly. If you're unwell, if, and for some people when they're sick or elderly and they can't move, actually... If you lie on a comfortable mattress and don't move, it doesn't take that long. The skin actually starts to break down. It's actually deeply painful, impactful to us. And it's so it's like, oh, we have a sensitivity that makes it really hard for us to be still. Now, I'm not saying we should stay still so long as we would get bed sores in that case. That's not going to happen to us in 45-minute sittings. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> might feel like it sometimes. But that 
it's, it's like that. And likewise for our mind, it's not easy for it to be still. That restlessness is kind of an expression of somehow trying to get things comfortable and right. But underlying it, it's expressing an unease with things just being still. We can crave and long for it, to be calm, to be still, to be steady. And yet so often when we arrive there, actually it's not easy to rest in that place because there's so many things that need to be done or could be done or fixed or improved or adjusted. With restlessness, just to be able to breathe and really helpful to breathe out and to make the commitment to stay without moving. Restlessness is not going to harm you. In fact, uh, one teacher, I can't remember who it was, used to say, uh, you know, see if you can be the first yogi to die of restlessness. Uh, give it a try. You know, it would be a bit sad if it happened, but you'd, you'd go down in history. You know? <laughs> what is it like to just say, okay, I'm not going to move. I'm going to stay with this. What we learn in these is, again, it's a certain courage, but we start to trust our ability to be with the truth of experience. And with restlessness, it tends to often have patterns with it that come to, to do with some sense of fear, anxiety, or excitement, to do with the future, or some degree of um, sort of entanglement with the past in terms of... Um, Guilt, regret, or distress, or anger. They often, these things actually feed a sense of restlessness at, at a psychological, emotional level. And physical discomfort, quite simply, physical discomfort generates restlessness in the body. So, that thing about the physical discomfort being disguised by the movement of changing of posture. So, when we don't change the posture, when we stay right here, and equally when we keep the mind or, or bring the mind right here, more and more, restlessness comes at times in waves, as if to shake us out of that. And what we're asked to do is really just relax. Can I just breathe and be with this? And giving attention to the out-breath, to a sense of, oh, it's okay, it's okay. This isn't dangerous to our well-being. And see if we can do nothing beyond that. The fourth challenge or hindrance, which again we've spoken about some, is commonly we think and experience or think about it, talk about as sleepiness, drowsiness, and you know, sort of the in the early translations, the sort of the, the term of sloth and torpor. It's got this kind of sort of heavy feeling, and we can recognise it as as being kind of like an an absence of energy. Whereas restlessness is like it's a lot of energy being activated, and not a lot of sense of grounding for that. With with Dullness, tiredness, heaviness, sloth and torpor. It's the opposite. It's this sort of heavy downward moving energy. And it's kind of, it's like pulling, it's like the eyes are going down, the head's going down, the body's going down and, and the mind is going, you know. You know, if we thought that the, you know, thinking coming to end would be pleasurable, actually sometimes dullness shows us that's not true because the mind stops thinking but it's just kind of, you know, kind of thick and dense and it's quite unpleasant actually if we feel into it. So there's a number of responses that we've already named and spoken about, giving more attention to the 
in-breath is useful. Just as giving more attention to the out-breath when we're restless, it's more calming, relaxing, and brings us down. When we breathe out, although the air is going up, energetically our system is coming down. The body is relaxing down, so it's really helpful with restlessness. With sleepiness, drowsiness, giving a little more attention to the in-breath. Because with the in-breath, although the air is going down, the body is lifting and rising, and it's actually being charged energetically with the vitality, the life force that's there in the, in the oxygen and the, and the very activeness of in-breathing. And uh, we can open our eyes, sit up straight, check the posture. I think we've mentioned some of these things, the option for standing up. I wanted to add one more thing, and I was speaking about this in the small group today. So um, for those of you who weren't there, one of the things I found incredibly helpful in my practice and working with drowsiness and um, heaviness and dullness has been to lift the arms up here above the head. And you're welcome to try if you'd like. We, did all, we all did it in the small group and everyone survived. So one of the great things about doing it together is that then no one needs to feel silly if they want to do it later because we've all done it. and you know We're all equally silly here. But if you do this for a moment, notice what happens. If you just go gently beyond the point, you don't have to force it, but beyond the point of where it's easy, without making it a battle against yourself, well, the muscles in the neck and the shoulders have to work quite a bit, and the tension in there that often tightens around the neck and shoulders and limits the blood flow and the energy movement to the brain, actually, by working them, it has to start to open. And one thing... I will guarantee, there's almost no guarantees in meditation. Anything can happen, but I will guarantee you won't fall asleep while you're holding your arms in the air. <laughs> it's for sure. It's for sure. And just if you like to put your arms down and notice what it feels like in your shoulders and your hands, just bringing them down, and what you notice in your body. A number of people in the group this morning, and this is common, notice a sense of more openness and more energy moving. It's fascinating that we can't, with our mind, get our mind to be bright. Our mind can't say wake up to itself in any meaningful way. But with our mind, we can engage our body. And with the body engaged, the mind starts to engage or become more bright. So with this, it's also interesting to reflect on the experience itself a little bit. Drowsiness, heaviness. It can be really painful in meditation to be trying to stay awake and being unable to. You know, and the sort of the head nodding or the sense of, oh, it's such an effort. And the experience feels really unpleasant. But you know, that very same experience is delicious when we're going to bed. That very same experience is just, oh, bring it on when we're curling up and pulling the sheets up. And the absence of it at that point when we're going to bed is extremely painful. And that's, I find, interesting to reflect on. That's not necessarily in terms of the hindrance, but in terms of the experience with it, that it's so subjective in accordance to what we want to be happening now, that we suffer with it. So the last uh, instruction with regard to, well, actually, maybe there's a couple, but the last one with regard to um, drowsiness and sleepiness that I, I like to share is one of the ones that the Buddha himself spoke of, and he suggested pulling on your earlobe as a way of staying awake. You can try that if you like. I've personally not found it that useful, but I've sometimes wondered how much the Buddha employed this, because if you look at the images of him, I don't know, what can you say? And so there's, 
in that not meaning to be disrespectful, I mean, I have a lot of appreciation here for this being. But it's easy for us to somehow imagine ourselves to be not on the same track when we experience these things and to say, oh, yeah, this is the experience of us all in this path. trying to see when I started. Yes, okay. So the last hindrance or challenge that we face is doubt. We're described as skeptical doubt, which is a different, very different thing than the sense of bright questioning and curiosity that comes from a sort of openness and not knowing and interest. But it's more a sense of the way in which we easily collapse into a sense of failure or impossibility of I can't do it, it's no good, it doesn't work, that's kind of cynical or negative or has a sense of kind of deflation about it. And often this arises when we're experiencing something else that's difficult, often one of the other hindrances. And it's amazing how often this happens. This is something that I probably I or maybe someone else relates on every retreat, certainly on most of the treat, retreats I taught, teach, there's this experience that happens and there's a, sort of a similar situation described in the, one of the, the small groups this morning. But it's so common for us to be struggling with whatever it is that we might be struggling with, you know, aching knees, busy mind. And at some point, oh, I just can't do this. It's just too much. And look up and see, everybody else seems so calm, so peaceful. <laughs> so mindful and focused and it's like you know all these wonderful practitioners soon to be awakened and just you know one overcooked vegetable sitting here (laughs) you know and then a few moments later that person having given up closes their eyes stopped moving because they're you know it's hopeless someone else will look up look around and see them they're sitting really still that person seems calm and it's like we create these stories in our minds about what's going on for each other. And somehow use them as a way of undermining what's happening here for ourselves. So when that arises, if it does, and it may do for you, if we're struggling, first of all to notice that, oh, it may be, it may be that we're we're putting too much pressure on. We've got some idea of where we're supposed to be that this isn't fulfilling and that the idea of I can't do it or it doesn't work. In a way, it's true. We can't do it like that. It doesn't work like that. That doesn't mean it isn't possible and that it isn't already working. But if we can see, oh, this is doubt, if we can name it, again, just like the others, we can name, oh, this is doubt. Just as we might be able to name restlessness or, or drowsiness or, or craving or aversion and just say, okay, oh, this is what's arisen. This has come into the field of experience. It's not forever. It's not forever. And in fact, it's, it's maybe not so surprising that we might encounter this. You know, there's often that sense of where I should have got to by now. You know, shouldn't I have got past this? We've been doing it for two days after all. My gosh, how long can it take? You know, there's a lovely story of a, uh, a 
a practitioner of some 20 years who had an opportunity for an audience with the Dalai Lama. Um, and he was very happy to have this chance to just speak to His Holiness about his practice. And he spoke about all the challenges and difficulties and struggles. And he was really looking forward to the you know, wonderful teacher being able to tell him how to fix it and you know, sort it out. And, and after he described all of this, he, he, he said how you know, His Holiness looked at him with great compassion. He said, yeah, you know, I understand how it is. You know, it's really difficult in the early years of meditation. It's just like that in the early years. And you know, 20 years? If 20 years are the early years, in the beginning, it's like, oh, we can relax. Huh? It's like we don't have to be measuring some kind of imagined progress against some kind of, Im- or, or fa- lack of progress, against some imagined scale of where we think we should be. We are where we are, and that is where we need to be. But can we let ourselves be there and see what's here? Because what's here is not just these difficult and challenging experiences, but also the very fact that we are here at all. And we're still here, despite all of that. The Buddha, on the night of his awakening, encountered doubt also. Again, Christina mentioned this last night. But in this context, the sense of, you know, to be questioned as to his right to be sitting here, to awaken. And his response was to touch the earth and the image of the Buddha here, touching the earth, touching the earth mudra. A sense of, and in that, he was remembering and, in a way, inviting the earth to bear witness to all his practice, to all his years and lifetimes, in the, according to the tradition, of, of developing many wonderful qualities of heart and mind. And that that actually gave him the support that he needed to stay there in the face of these challenges. And so for ourselves, when we're not sure and we're wondering, how am I doing? Is it okay? Can I do it? It's not working? All of that. It's really important and helpful just to remember the nobility of what we're engaged in. Just the fact that we're here in the midst of all this, we're already engaged in something that's transformative. The fact that it's not easy, that it doesn't always happen the way we want it to, is not born of some kind of failure. The, um, the philosopher Spinoza once said, I think it was Spinoza, all truly noble human endeavors are as rare as they are difficult. And what we're engaged in here is a noble endeavor to liberate the heart and mind from the forces of greed and hatred, to find the capacity to be free in the midst of our reactivities, to stay steady in the face of craving or aversion, restlessness or drowsiness and sleepiness, in the face of doubt, to see these experiences as arising And having the nature to arise, therefore, unstoppably having the nature to pass. To see that they come and go, and they are not who we are. When we can start to recognize the truth of this, they have no power to take us away from the deepening of our journey and our practice.
And although the activity, we could say in this case, uh, using the words differently here slightly, but we can say sometimes we see the, the mind move and yet the heart can remain steady. So it's like different aspects of what is afflicting the heart-mind may be moving. And yet there can be also that, the knowing of this heart-mind that is steady, that is not defined by what comes. Just to, again, offer the, the words of the Buddha that I shared at the beginning of the, the talk. Friends, he said, this heart-mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is afflicted by conditions that visit from the outside. Those that do not understand this, for those that do not understand this, there is no development of the heart-mind. This heart-mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. For those who do understand this, there is the development of the heart-mind. Just again, because I misphrased that last one. This heart-mind is radiant, luminous, brightly shining. It is free of the forces, the afflictions which visit it. It is free of the forces which visit it. For those who understand this, there is the development of the heart-mind. And this is our invitation. This is our potential to understand that which moves is visiting. And that in which it moves is still. In seeing our experience as it is, we can come to really understand the natural luminosity of this heart-mind and the freedom of wakefulness. So let's sit quietly for a few moments together. So may we all, in our practice here together and in our lives, may we come to see and understand deeply the afflictive forces of mind and heart that visit, learning to handle them skillfully for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings.
So it's time now for some walking meditation and the next sitting at 8.45. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.